I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. Uh, there's big new proposals on harassment and sexual misconduct. We'll get across the detail. Uh, Tonsi Blair's back with a new national purpose. We'll see what that's all about. Uh, plus housing in Nottingham. It's all coming up. Things haven't changed. And I think that's the thing. If you look at the, the evidence that OFS are drawing on, the most recent survey, I think it was 2020, 2021, and it was the part taken from the National Crime Survey, where full-time students were the occupational group most likely to have experienced sexual assault. And I think it was something like 8%, which is an incredibly high proportion. So what's gone before in terms of impact? Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly round to this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here to weigh up this week's dollop of regulatory burden, as usual, three terrific guests. Uh, in Nottingham, Paul Greatflix is Registrar at the University of Nottingham. Paul, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week was talking to Professor Andy Westwood at Manchester University to record a delightful podcast in the series My Imaginary University. He was fantastic. It was great fun. Excellent stuff. And there's a link to that uh, in the show notes, at least a link to the feed. I'm not sure if you've published that episode yet, Paul, but a terrific podcast. Link link to the feed in the show notes. Uh, In Gravesend, Selena Bollingbrook is an HE consultant. Selena, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, Hi, Jim. I've been doing a bit of holiday planning and uh, I'm doing a Yorkshire road trip. And I managed to get myself a ticket on the Flying Scotsman, which will be travelling through Keithley and Worth Valley Railway in mid-May, celebrating its 100-year anniversary. So I'm super excited about that. Very excited. We're looking forward to a vlog. Uh, and in Elkiston this week, Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitty. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, well, it's date night at the House of McLeach tonight, so uh, we are very excited to get out, just the two of us, after nine months of uh, baby care. Oh, very excited. What are you doing? Where are you going? Um, we are going to a local Italian place to drink a bottle of Chianti. <laughs> Very good. Well, so. Possibly more than one. <laughs> Excellent. So, yes, we start this week with harassment and sexual misconduct. OFS has some dramatic new proposals for providers in England, Selena. Yes, uh, OFS has published a consultation today which updates the uh, sector on its expectations uh, of HE providers in terms of the prevention and management of harassment and sexual misconduct. Uh, so... They had introduced a kind of voluntary code back in April 2021. Uh, They clearly don't think that progress has been sufficient to date and they had done an independent evaluation to look at what improvements had been made. And what they found was that there was still a great deal of inconsistency across the sector. So this consultation proposes really quite radical uh, new conditions in, in that they are proposing a new condition of registration for providers. Uh, and I mean, this is something that if you look at the evidence of the problem, which uh, is in the uh, consultation paper itself, this is something that has been not just going on, but has been documented for many, many years now, going all the way back to the NUS report hidden marks back in 2010. So I think for a lot of people, um, this will be uh, a, an important piece of uh, OFS regulation. 
And the one of the there's there's a number of different aspects of that condition of registration, but uh, a couple of things really stand out there. And uh, one of the things is that there would be regulatory requirements in relation to staff student relationships, and that there should be uh, a uh, an obligation on institutions to not just have a single policy document, but to ensure that there is sufficient resource and capacity to to comply with that condition of registration. So I think really important, there's a two or three month consultation period on this, uh, but this is something that I think a lot of people have said has been wanting for a long time now. Debbie, this has been, you know, as, as Selena says, this has been, been, been a long time coming. Are, are, we, are, we, are we clear on why it's taken this long? Is it that it's taken this long because it was right for providers to you know, try and kind of sort this out beforehand. Is, o- is OFS overcooking the, the, the problem? You know, what's what's really going on here in terms of that gap between hidden marks and today? Well, I think some of this is about trying to understand what's in the power of providers to do. And I think it's really, really important that you kind of disaggregate the topic itself, harassment and sexual misconduct. You know, every, everybody, nobody disagrees. You know, perhaps, perhaps harassers and people who engage in sexual misconduct disagree. But, you know, the, the vast majority of people agree that it, these, these are not things that we would like to see on our university campuses. Then the other question is, OK, well, what are the right things for universities and student unions to do to uh, try and not yet, yeah, not, you know, not, not, not only kind of support people who are affected by it, but also try and kind of re- and reduce it overall. And I think genuinely it's, it's taken quite a long time to figure out what that is, because some of this is about culture. Some of this is about uh, reporting systems. Some of this is about uh, sort of trust in uh, universities to be able, you know, it's about developing the expertise in universities. So as much as it is frustrating, I think for those of us who've been kind of there since 2009 and, 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 and kind of watching, watching this unfold, I think you can't fault the efforts that have gone on to try and figure out what are the things that can be done. And I think it, it continues to be interesting to, I will be really, really interested to see what the impact of, of making it regulatory is, because I think where universities have really stepped up, they've done lots of stuff about you know, about developing that expertise and, 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 and that support systems, about you know bystander training. All of these things uh, require evaluation and they require kind of a degree of sustainability. I think the thing that happens when you make it a regulatory requirement is you make it you consistent practice across the sector and you you ensure that, that that funding is made available to to sustain things that are working quite well. I think the other, but the other thing that happens when you introduce it as a regulatory requirement is is that um, it becomes very much about demonstrating compliance with regulation and not necessarily some of the stuff that we would have seen in the past about changing cultures and leadership and and all the rest of it. So, it, yeah, it's uh, you know it all comes down to theory of change ultimately. Yes, Paul, you, you, you've re- you know you're an official uh, an aficionado of uh, you, you know higher education regulation, and actually you've got a blog on the site this week about regulatory burden. What, what's your view here on on what undoubtedly is a significant extension of powers being proposed by OFS into an area that it perhaps hasn't really gone into before regula- in terms of regulation? I think to Debbie's point, right, the, the important thing about this is, you know, there is absolutely, this is an issue which the sector has to grapple with, has been grappling with for many, many, many years, and it's entirely proper. It becomes the focus of attention. And I suppose my my anxiety with this is that, and I was genuinely surprised to to discover that this was uh, coming out as a consultation, um, and it's one of those consultations that you know what the answer is uh, as soon as they publish the document because it's eighty pages long or however long it is, very long. You know, so so we know what the answer is going to be here. Um, but the I, I was genuinely surprised at the extent and the reach of it, and and I suppose the fundamental issue for me is that the sector has sought. To, um, to get its house in order, recognising that its track record was woeful over many years, but has spent 
really in the last seven years, I would say, since the beginning of the change in the culture work that UUK uh, has led, with all universities and colleges involved, has been really focusing on this across a range of areas, not just uh, sexual harassment, but beyond, beyond that as well. So I am, I'm frankly disappointed to suddenly feel that we're, we're charging down the regulatory route. And I, I fear, well, you can't regulate a culture in, right? If what we're seeking, and I absolutely agree with this, is cultural change, it takes time and it has to happen within university. And the regulating of it will not actually um, deliver that. So it feels to me we're moving down a road which is fundamentally about an administrative bureaucratic compliance approach, which I fear will actually um, not enhance the arrangements in universities for addressing this really, really difficult problem. And I, I think I'd be really interested to hear what colleagues have to say about the, the staff-student relationship thing um, as well and the role of a, a regulator in, in addressing that particular issue, which I think is you know, the, the big press focus on this has been around that. I think it goes far, far further than that, but it's a really interesting dimension of this proposed regulation. Yes. I mean, look, on, on, on the staff-student relationships thing, so so obviously OFS has got two proposals here on the table and it's expressed a preference for one of them. One of them is effectively to kind of declare and register uh, to, so that a university, OFS is confident the university is managing a conflict of interest and then the other is effectively a, a ban. And already on Twitter this morning, I see the usual kind of whataboutery around a kind of blanket ban. So, you know, there are two questions, Selena, aren't there? One is, should OFS be in this space at all? And then if it is, where should it be, be, be requiring universities and colleges to draw that line? Should it be about managing conflict of interest or should there be, you know, a much bigger kind of blanket ban? Uh, I believe there should be a blanket ban. And I mean, I, I hear what Paul says in terms of uh, OFS kind of getting involved in an area of regulation and the fact that institutions are, you know, well motivated and have made some progress. But uh, from my perspective, I think that we've gone through a kind of at least a, a, a decade of a lot of debate, a lot of awareness raising. And I think we need things haven't changed. And I think that's the thing. If you look at the the evidence that OFS are drawing on, the most recent survey, I think was 2020, 2021. And it was the part taken from the National Crime Survey, where full time students were the occupational group most likely to have experienced sexual assault. And I think it was something like 8%, which is an incredibly high proportion. So what's gone before in terms of impact hasn't worked. And I think the thing about culture is that sometimes you have to have very hard boundaries and lines to signal and to symbolise wider culture change. Uh, and personally, I think the most powerful um, tool that institutions have around this is to recognise the implicit power imbalance in staff uh, and student relationships, not just where there's a direct relationship, but indeed where there is an indirect relationship, and to outlaw that. And I think certainly from you know my days of when I uh, was a, a full-time administrator within a university setting, I would have preferred to have implemented that ban than have implemented a, uh, a, a kind of register situation that needed constant policing and was you know, going to be subject to a high level of, of subjectivity around some of that. I think sometimes you do need uh, black and white lines here. And, and I think that would be a very, very powerful move. And I certainly think that the, sorry, j just to finish, I think that the, the gains would far outweigh the costs. But Debbie, that's very interesting, isn't it, from a regulatory design point of view? And to some extent, this is playing out on social media already this morning, because 
if you have something that's really kind of blunt and, and you know, kind of, you know, zeros and ones, then the danger is that the complexity in what really happens on campus that's perfectly legitimate kind of gets lost. On the other hand, if you have something that's really complicated, you don't send clear signals and then, you know, kind of abusers, if you like, find their way round things. And, and this, this question in terms of regulatory design, that's not a question that's exclusive to this issue. This, this is a question that concerns all sorts of things that OFS says and does in relation to metrics and God knows what else, where when it's really simple and clear, people moan it's not being kind of complex and subtle enough. And when it's complex and subtle, people know that it's not being clear enough. I think, I think there's something going on here about, um, and, and I don't know whether it's good faith or bad faith, but, but that sort of thing about people sort of thing, taking the policy for the reality. You know, where you say, well, well, if um, if we have to ban staff-student relationships, then how could someone, you know, join the university? You know, how could the how could the partner of a professor join the university to take a short course? And you're like, well, that I mean, they could, couldn't they? Because that's not how policy works. You know, the 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 power of the signal of a ban says this is this is broadly unacceptable. But the reality also is is that um, it, it is perfectly possible to create exceptions, to uh, manage uh, anomalies, uh, to interpret in such a way as you can kind of do the do the right thing. Um, but without, you know, and maintain the sort of spirit of, of something without without perhaps maintaining the letter of it. And I think this is where also, I mean, I, I can I continue and you, you talk about talk about the full sort of breadth, breadth of OFS regulatory activity. And I and I and I have a, a lot of sympathy with uh, those who kind of worry about the risks inherent in being a little bit overinterpretive of some of, of some of, uh, of of what's going on with things like metrics and 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 uh, you know the various regulatory conditions. But I do think that sometimes. Um, universities have a little bit more power to interpret and implement in the in the sort of spirit than they than they you know than they think they do, and some of that is about tone, and some of that is about uh, you know creative thinking, <laughs> um, and 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 there's obviously a kind of line line and that you know you, beyond which you, you're sort of you're going too far, and and, and knowing what, knowing not knowing where that is, is it creates challenges. But um, you know I think I agree with Selena that fundamentally the kind of signal that a band sends. Is, is incredibly important to establishing that boundary. And then, you know, where the grey areas exist, you can kind of figure that out. Paul, one of the other things that I think is really interesting in here is 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 this idea that what providers will have to do to kind of demonstrate that they've kind of, you know, complied with the condition is effectively carry out a risk assessment, but not a risk assessment that, you know, of the sort that's the kind of thing that would normally appear on the, you know, the agenda of university council or whatever, but a risk assessment in relation to students, you know, which students in which settings are more likely to experience sexual misconduct or harassment and which are least likely to report. that That's actually, to be fair, I think, unless I'm missing something, that's a fairly new idea across the sector, even where universities are quite well ahead on this approach. It is a, it is a new idea, and um, I, I, I come back to this issue. that It's, it's, a, it's a fundamentally a very difficult issue to try and regulate a cultural change. And what is being sought here is you know, basically a bureaucratic mechanism for addressing this very, very challenging issue. And I mean, what will happen in my, 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 my real concern about this is what will happen is that the many, many institutions that have really embraced this issue and sought to, to really change their culture and to address all of the problems that have been raised over the years, the issues that have been raised by um, particularly um, female students about the, their treatment at the hands of other students and at the hands of staff and in the environments in which they, they, they live and study, right? All of those issues which everyone's, you know, really grappling with and said, actually, we now have to look at something slightly different because our primary concern will be compliance, right? Because our primary aim will to be ensure that we maintain, uh, 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 we meet the conditions uh, uh, of registration. 
So added value actually becomes less valuable. Um, you don't get extra points uh, in the eyes of the OFS for exceeding the requirements of the condition. And that's my concern. And the risk assessment may be a great idea. It may be a really, really good approach. And I, you know, and I think that many institutions would like to try it out. Actually, if it's a requirement, it turns into something very difficult. Let me take the one example, though, with come back to staff-student relationships thing, because I think it's really interesting. I have a very strong personal view in this, which is I agree with uh, Selena and Debbie. I think they should be banned. However, I've seen debates in universities around the country where you know there has been really a lot of focus on this, and very few universities, I think, now have actually come out with a, an outright an outright ban because it is quite difficult to do. And part of the reason is the nuance that that, that Debbie articulated, but also there is you know we've got communities of people with different views, and I'm I, I have to say. I'm not wholly convinced that imposing a ban is the right way to do it. I'm even less convinced, I have to say, that, that you know, a national register of staff-student relationships, which is what the other option is, is the way forward either. But I think it's right that universities all are required to discuss this issue again, because I think they need to adopt it themselves rather than have it imposed. Debbie, let me ask you oh, th th this other question. Well, one of the things I think is fascinating in here is... OFS is, is going quite far in requiring certain types of training and development, and and and, I, and this is the word it uses, teaching for students and training for students, both on understanding of the terms here and also, um, you know, the kind of bystander training thing. I mean, this idea that in pursuit of something that isn't directly related to your course, the national regulator is telling universities that they effectively have to do some curriculum stuff on the study environment. That's major and, and big, isn't it? Hmm. I mean, yeah, I suppose it depends whether you interpret it as being curriculum. Um, and I mean, and actually, I mean, I, I am fairly, I'm fairly relaxed about the idea of the curriculum, including, in fact, I'm actually a bit of an advocate for it, if anything, in, including what is essentially personal development. You know, how to, being, being, being a good citizen, you know, living in community with others and, and, you know, contributing to that community. I think, I think all of that is kind of very much within the gift of, of higher education to kind of to, to put into the curriculum um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, creates, I think, probably some quite good outcomes if it's done, if it's done well and thoughtfully and, and all the rest of it. Um, uh, yes, I suppose the the idea that the regulator can kind of man mandate this in some way, I think, is probably a bit more problematic, and that's legitimate. I mean, and also a, a point you made in your blog this morning, Jim, about um, uh, the the idea that this is about kind of identifying how uh, universities will protect students, and I think that actually there is a, a genuine kind of language issue there. I think that kind of idea about educating is, is is a much more kind of useful idea for a university to be doing because I'm not sure. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that a university can protect students. Um, I also worry, I think, as, as you imply in, in your piece, that uh, we're talking about a, a group of students, primarily but not exclusively women, uh, who need to be protected from another group of students, primarily but not exclusively men. Um, and of course, we know that uh, some of that language is, is, is disempowering for women. It can also lead to victim blaming. Um, and this idea that, you know, that it, unless you protect yourself, you're essentially leaving yourself open to harassment and misconduct. Um and, and 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 so on and so forth. So I think this idea that you know we educate the community about what is appropriate behaviour is actually the right way to go, um, and it might be quite helpful to finesse the language, in order to kind of indicate to universities that that you know that is something that 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 we would be kind of welcomed. And and, and what, what, one of the things, Selena, that the, the, the uh, we sort of knew this was coming because it's the it's the same formulation that OFS has used on over a number of issues. But seeing it in in in, in print, I think is fascinating. This idea that. Even if your only relationship with another provider is to validate the degrees, you have to make sure that your policy is being upheld by the, 
you know, the provider, even if it's in another country or whatever, you know, th th that is going to create some really interesting challenges, isn't it? When we're talking about years abroad or placement providers or, you know, franchise or validation arrangements. This is this is interesting new space. Yeah, I, I think it kind of does provide some uh, challenges. There's always been challenges around um, sort of partnership based education. I think probably more so than the validation scenario is the workplace scenario because of the potential for some kind of uh, either dual process or conflict in process with work-based policies. Um, and actually, I think that was one of the things I was thinking when Debbie was talking about the sort of mandatory training requirement and whether or not it's uh, you know curriculum-based or outside the curriculum. I think what's important there is actually... This kind of education is about preparation for for work. For you know, th th this isn't going to be an issue that is just relevant at university. Um, but you're right. Uh, with all of these things, there is going to be some uh, complexity in terms of the way in which it's delivered and who takes responsibility. But validating institutions have probably got comparable situations um, to draw upon in terms of the way in which they delineate with their partner who takes responsibility and that there is, if you like, a sort of single interface from a student perspective. Paul, just 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 one other thing that the, the, the once, you know, from a thin end of the wedge point of view. Once it becomes, you know, okay for the regulator to say universities must kind of teach and train students on X, where X isn't directly related to the kind of program, you know, probably most weeks we review a PDF, a report from someone that says there ought to be uh, training or education on X, Y, and Z in, in universities that relates to students as citizens or the climate or, you know, all sorts of things. Is this a thin end of the wedge? Is the danger here that everyone over the next 15 years will pile in and say, well, well, we want universities now to do X for all your students or Y for all students. Or is this one so important that this one can kind of stand alone? I, um, I, I always fear using the thin end of the wedge argument, but I, 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 you've got it bang on, Jim. And my, my concern would be ex exactly that. I mean, once you get essentially government or an arm of government telling universities what to teach, then we are in, you know, really, really difficult territory here, right? And I, I, I absolutely get the, the, the argument that we, we do need to ensure that our, our, our students, you know, are properly provided to enable them to make, uh, with the education to enable them to make, you know, a normal, uh, an appropriate contribution to university and community life. And that, that, that's fine. But fundamentally, it has to be to each university to determine how to do that in, in their own way. Otherwise, we end up in national curriculum territory. We end up with government deciding what goes in uh, chemistry and French degrees. Um, and we might as well all pack up uh, and go home because you're seeing the terminal decline of uh, UK higher education. So, yes, it is the thin end of the wedge. Well, fascinating stuff. Good. Lots more coverage on the site. Uh, but for now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, I'm Dr. Michelle Morgan and I'm a student experience transition specialist who is the Dean of Students at the University of East London. I've been blogging for Wonky this week about the need to introduce a sector-wide approach in monitoring intermissions and withdrawals of students in higher education to understand the impact of the cost of living crisis. I called for it during the COVID-19 pandemic, but this is now something the Students A PPG inquiry launched by Paul Blomfield really needs to investigate as a matter of urgency. There is already a wealth of long-standing research highlighting the impact of disadvantage in higher education amongst certain groups without any crisis occurring. 
And already we're starting to see valuable research coming through looking at the impact of the cost of living on different groups. For universities who have a large number of students from disadvantaged backgrounds, this will further impact on progression, retention and outcomes and the all-important metrics that are used to weigh, measure, judge and rank universities. The reasons why collecting systematic data is so important is that every institution collects and records reasons for intermission, change in study mode and withdrawal differently. And the categories universities have to complete their HESA returns are broad and quite basic. We know a student's decision to stop studying is often complex with no single cause. And it is this complexity that is very much at the heart of discussion at this year's Secret Life of Students being held on the 14th of March at the Shaw Theatre. So if you haven't booked your ticket, do so quickly and be part of the discussion to help support our students and our higher education community. Now, next up, there's a new report from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change and it looks like Tonti has been for a pint with former party leader, Tory party leader, Lord Haig. Paul, what's the upshot of all this? Well, uh, this is the second report in two days, which took me by surprise. Uh, I wasn't wasn't <coughs> expecting this. I you just wait till tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly wasn't expecting uh, Tony Blair and uh, William Haig to be going for multiple pints together and coming up with this kind of thing. I, I have to say, I was really impressed. Um, it's a substantial piece of work by a clearly a, a very, very well-organised and disciplined and well-read group of policy wonks who've come up with a whole series of recommendations about rebuilding and reshaping government and the state around the idea uh, that science and technology is at the heart of future economic and social uh, success and a means of driving innovation throughout the economy uh, and throughout government. There's a ton of stuff um, uh, in there. And a lot of it seems to me to be really well thought through, sensible uh, policy uh, proposals. And what's really, really interesting about it, and there is loads of stuff They highlights the areas the UK's fallen behind, but highlights real areas uh, of strength as well. The things that excited me most about it, to be honest, and I, again, I must stress, I am genuinely surprised at how good I think this is, and others better informed may say no, it's full of holes. But it does stress the vital role of higher education in all of this, and the critical contribution of graduates to the UK's productivity and to the economy, the importance of educational technologies and enhancing learning experience in both schools and universities, the vital need for long-term investment in research and development. And this is at a time when we've suddenly seen money go out the door only, only yesterday, which is a real concern. And incentives in terms of talent attraction, that's about providing an attractive visa regime so we get the best uh, academics from across the world, the best researchers, uh, and also the best future uh, employees in this country. Again, which runs counter to the current anti-immigration narrative. More about STEM in universities as well as in schools and getting more women into technology. And a really interesting line as well about um, uh, course approval routes in universities and how long it takes to get a new course approved. So it's become really niche higher education stuff. So overall, I think there's an awful lot in there, which is really, really exciting. But also so a lot of it is common sense writ large as well. So a sense of real excitement. And I, you know, I have to say I'm surprised and really, really chuffed to have read it. I, I think it's super. Yes. I mean, I don't know about you, Debbie, and obviously you've written a piece on, on the on the report on, on the site. But but when I was reading it, I, I, I was I was thinking I was I was actually kind of almost viscerally rejecting it in the way that a body might reject the medicine because it just seemed so optimistic you know, visionary, 
Uh, it seemed to have its analysis bang on. It kind of felt like it didn't exist in the real world as a result. Yeah, and I think this is kind of what I was wrestling with as well because I, I was just, I just, every, every, I was reading and I was thinking, this is cracking. You know, imagine, imagine, <laughs> imagine if we had policy that was this. You know, because I, I, I think it's, it's also fair to say, and I think I sort of, I sort of touch on this in, in, in the piece this morning a little bit. You know, that un, unless you personally are across the detail of, you know, artificial intelligence, biotech, climate tech, edtech, you know, you, you can't necessarily, you know, you can't assess assess each of its claims on, on, you know. There, there may, there may be kind of moments where you know people who were deeply into any one of those fields might say, okay, well, actually, this is a little thin because that's the nature. But that, that is the nature of policy. That is how you know by bringing bringing these things together in a way that is kind of thinking about radical change um, is you know that that's sort of often what happens is you do skirt over some of the nuance and detail on on, on the specifics, and that's okay. That's fine. Um, but yes, I, I'm sort of thinking, okay, so not only uh, are we, we we've become so cynical, we've become so inured to um, sort of surface level. Uh, populist, you know, uh, you know, trying, trying to, you know, trying, to, trying, trying to kind of sell, sell things that are, you know, that are very much kind of turd polished versions of policy. That the idea that you could actually do something meaningful to change people's lives in the way that Haig and Blair outline, and that you could do it with a kind of cross party consensus, you know, it's just, it just feels like it's for the birds. And and this is kind of why I sort of said, you know, all this. This is where I think it's a question about how do universities pick. You know, I think there's, there's quite an interesting opportunity for universities here because some of these areas that, that talk about the role of universities. So first of all, you know, let's celebrate that and recognise that that it, you know how just how very very important universities might be to a few, the, the sort of future that is that's very infused around science and technology. Um, but also, let's think about um, where universities could push this debate forward. Um, and also where universities might actually even take some of the insight here and apply it in their own context. Because I think actually, if there's any organisations of the state, with a caveat, of course, universities are not organisations of the state, but you know, they, they could re- there's an awful lot that they could do to uh, re- adopt some of this thinking um, within their own organisations. And that might even kind of demonstrate some of the possibilities of what happens when you do that. So that kind of embedding of of of, of technology across the, the full breadth of the mission of the university, the uh, the kind of the org- the organising of activity around the idea that you know science and technology are going to be what's defining the future of of British citizens, and they need to not only engage with it in a kind of meaningful way to you know for efficiency purposes, but actually for innovation purposes. You know, it's a really exciting prospect, actually. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Now on all of that, Selena, let's. Um... You know, obviously, Paul and Debbie are very excited about this, but let's try and land on Earth, shall we? So, so just to read from Debbie's blog this morning, um, uh, there's a lot of scope for universities to take the initiative on some of the arguments here and so on, but there is a case to be made that the problems of the British state can sometimes be seen inside universities too. Multiple departments working on similar problems, but from different perspectives, a long-established hierarchy that limits fresh thinking, central bureaucracies that are designed for accountability rather than supporting innovation. You know, add all of that to everyone's knackered, there's an industrial relations problem and there's no money around. And he's really, isn't it hard to see how universities might pivot to something like this? Uh, Yes, you were right to come to me as the guest with a slightly more cynical approach. (laughs) I, I, I have to say, um, yeah, William Hague, the Englishman in a baseball cap. Um, I wasn't quite so excited because it felt very much like motherhood and apple pie. Um, and actually, I just didn't feel any of the... I, I mean, don't get me wrong. The vision that is outlined, yes, that is wanted and yes, that is needed. Um, but I think it's a vision that's been stated before. Um, and I think we lack so many of the strategic building blocks in terms of sort of modern governance uh, 
to even begin to get us there. And, and, and that's outside universities. I certainly think that uh, there is space for universities to become more of the thought leaders and and to demonstrate practice uh, in, in this area by joining up. But you know, I, I have to say that it takes real effort sometimes inside universities to make those interdisciplinary links from a research and a knowledge exchange perspective. I also think that some of the real sort of uh, disablers behind a more joined up approach comes within universities, comes back to the fact that we effectively don't have long term funding settlements for our own research and knowledge exchange, uh, which which makes things very, you know, effectively research is subsidised by the student experience, by student fees at the moment. Um, so I, I, I think that there is uh, lots of lots of hope within that report in terms of the, um, the, the, the sunny uplands, but there's, there's no vehicle for, for, for getting there. And I, and I think, Jim, you're right, that there feels like there are much more pressing problems. Um, I think what is interesting is the way in which this is, uh, well, two things, obviously the kind of cross-party or the, or the design of a cross-party appeal, but also this real recognition that what is required is much more joined-up government in terms of uh, more strategic planning across departments, across ministries, and certainly some when when I worked as a civil servant, um, that that was still very hard to affect. I mean, I'm talking about the the early 2000s, um, but when it did happen, it made such an impact. So I, I think if nothing else, if this brings back some more policy-based conversation in the right ministries in the cabinet office about why we need to um, effectively have a kind of revitalised uh, industrial, economic, innovation, uh, higher education kind of strategy piece, then I think that would be a good thing. Now, we've got an event coming up in a few weeks. Uh, here's some geezer called Jim to tell us more. Hi, it's Jim from the team here with news of the secret life of students. Back for its fourth year, we're going to take the opportunity to get real about students, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers to get an accurate and unvarnished picture of the student condition in 2023 so we can work out how to respond rather than just react. Shifting from a surface-level understanding of student satisfaction with services to a deeper understanding of their motivations, ambitions and lives can be hugely rewarding and important both for them and those supporting them. It's also vital in an age that seems quick to assume, judge and condemn students rather than listen, understand and act on their concerns. So at the event, we'll be asking questions like, what are students doing when they're not in the classroom? Where is the line between their desire to collaborate and regulations that ban collusion? Is it true they're not prepared to debate and discuss controversial issues? Why do they rate assessment and feedback so badly on the NSS? And how many are confident about being real students, let alone what comes next? On the day, we'll feature key findings into the student experience from the past year. We'll launch exciting new research into the student learning experience beyond the classroom. And we'll launch our new Student Insights platform, Belong, a wonky group GTI initiative. And we'll share the first findings from its research. It's an essential event for anyone working on policy and delivery for students. That's the secret life of students. London, March the 14th. We'd love to see you there. Go to wonky.com forward slash events and book now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Andrew Bush from KPMG, and I'm popping into the Wonky Show to talk about the reclassification of further education colleges and sixth forms. On the 29th of November last year, the Office for National Statistics announced the reclassification of further education colleges and sixth forms into the central government sector. From that date, this requires those entities to follow the framework of financial management set out in the Treasury's Managing Public Money Guidance. This has got wide-ranging implications and impacts for those entities and any subsidiary companies attached to them and will require upfront approval from the DfE and sometimes Treasury in a number of areas. For borrowing, all new borrowing, any drawdown on existing facilities, the renegotiation of existing facilities and overdrafts will all require approval. Senior pay and remuneration will be subject to certain thresholds above which approval will need to be obtained and that applies to certain levels of pay award as well. The proceeds from any asset disposals will need to be ring-fenced and used for future capital reinvestment. Write-offs and losses will be subject to specific thresholds above which approval will be required. Any severance, compensation and ex gratia payments will be subject to certain guidance. Any indemnities, guarantees or letters of comfort have also got specific rules that have to be followed. And where they exist, any novel, contentious or repercussive transactions will also need upfront approval. One final area that's being considered is how the sector obtains insurance and how that should be sought going forwards. And we wait further information on that. So as I started, this was effective immediately from the 29th of November and it required those entities to react very quickly to be able to comply with this guidance. And going forward, it will inevitably require plans to be reconsidered, and I'm sure further information will be awaited from the DfE. Now, Nottingham has a new student living strategy. Debbie, what on earth is happening here? Or there? <laughs> well, um, so the universities of Nottingham and Nottingham Trent and the, uh, the no and Nottingham Council have got together to publish a consultation on a student living strategy. So this would be about broadly uh, about increasing affordable accommodation in the city um, so to to you know for, for for students because you know the demand is high. Um, it's about developing good community or you know continuing and fostering good community relations uh, between kind of town and gown. Um, and and it's also about retaining graduates in the city. And you know what I really love about this is the whole thing is grounded in the idea that students and graduates. Uh, or you know they're sort of seen as an asset to be encouraged rather than a problem to be to be managed, um, and of course the sort of joint nature means that there's lots of scope to kind of do do interesting stuff together. Um, so that's kind of yeah that's the uh, that that's the overall thing, and 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 it's it's really nicely presented as well. It's it's got lots of pic pictures of students kind of contributing to their community, and 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 it's it's very kind of accessible piece of work. So I think you know to be highly commended all round really. And, and Paul, the thing about this piece of work is it, it you know I mean. Clearly, on one level, that, that there's that, that I can imagine 
you know, there's, a, there's, there's someone stood at a podium, there's someone talking about the contribution that students make to the city. But this is a really important component of the local plan in terms of the planning arrangements in the city, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, uh, Jim. And uh, I'm pleased to say this was a report that I did know was uh, what, what was, com- what was coming out. Um, we, we've been working on this together, uh, the three parties, for, for a few years now, actually. So, so this is the, the kind of... Um, final phase in the development of the, the strategy. And um, it really has been you know, an awful lot of hard work behind the scenes to ensure that we were all pulling in the same direction here because we've had a history of you know, lots of people uh, getting cross with each other um, about student behaviour, about universities not contributing, about uh, the city council not being interested and communities being upset, councillors being upset, right? And we all got around the table and agreed that we just had to find a different way through it. And the accommodation thing was 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 a really big part of that. But what it meant was it was a kind of recognition of, you're absolutely right, that students as citizens and as primary members of a, you know, what is a, a young community in the city of Nottingham were absolutely elemental to its future success. And, and getting everyone on board with that idea has been really, really powerful. And collating all the marvellous things that students do in their communities, yes, dealing with the challenges as well, but showing them at their best, not just in terms of economic contribution, but the social, the cultural contribution, the volunteering they do, has been you know, really great in terms of highlighting the contribution they make to the life of the city. And it's been a really positive thing. And that kind of vibrancy and enthusiasm, I think, does translate really well into this kind of really clear three-point strategy. We've engaged a lot of people in the development of it, and we're now looking to get everyone else's contributions as well before we, we finalise it and then move forward with the approach. Yes, I mean, certainly one of my reflections, you know, as well as the kind of, you know, the gloss and the fonts and, and, and the so on on it, one of my reflections in terms of the comments from the Director of Planning in, in, in the Council late last year was that Nottingham looks and feels like one of the few cities in the country that is genuinely on top of the relationship between housing supply and housing demand, which is to some extent being generated by bringing students to the city in a way that I think lo- lo- lots of other cities Oh, Selena, if I was being kind of harsh, outside of London, where, you know, obviously London's very complicated, outside of London, I see lots of universities on international students saying, oh my God, international students make a great contribution, they're really valuable and so on. But I don't see this kind of effort going in with other universities and the city to kind of make that real in terms of where students are living and contributing. Um, yeah, I mean... I think that the one of the sort of real boons behind the civic engagement uh, agreement signups was that it would um, force a conversation, I think, in a lot of cities, particularly where there was more than one universities, about some very solid commitments that they could make with the local authority. Um, when I was at Goldsmiths, we, we, we certainly did that and we were talking to health partners as well. I think Nottingham have done a fantastic job because it's easy to start these conversations, but what Nottingham have done is they've stuck with it throughout the years. And it, it, it's a bit like a you know that rolling stone in that now you, you've, you've, you've got the housing strategy, there will be other uh, initiatives I'm sure that will come along that will enrich the life of, of of Nottingham and its environs but also bring other partners potentially into the fore so one of the things I'm always interested in is you know what is your you, you've got Nottingham College I don't know whether or not they're partners in this conversation yet and I know less of their students are going to be reliant on housing in the same way that the universities will but I I, I think that's a really important conversation to ask local FE colleges to be part of 
Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that Sheffield have done uh, something similar, or certainly they, they, they had a couple of years ago in terms of talking to the city council about um, licensing schemes and greater involvement of the universities in the local development plan to account for uh, increased student numbers. Debbie, one of the things that happened when we were on our little European tour this year is that, that you know the coach tumbled into a rainy Antwerp and we go into this ostensibly student union building and 10 minutes later we discover that the city council funded it. So invested is the city council at Antwerp that they funded the biggest student union building in the city with a big strategy that includes training clubs and societies on sexual misconduct to join up all the threads because the city is interested in the conduct of students. Well, are we ever going to get there? Are we ever going to get to a point where, you know, places in, in the UK are so invested in students and the student experience rather than othering students as being, you know, kind of temporary and tourists that, you know, they do that kind of integration and investment? Well, I think in, in a sort of, in a funny kind of way, it, 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 because one of the things that has happened, and of course, you know, Selena will be across this, you know, in space, is, is, is the sort of gutting of local government. Um, and, you know, the, the turnout in local elections is not amazing. And, and so, you know, and as, a, as, a, as a consequence, the kind of the, the power of local government to kind of respond to the diversity of its citizenry um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and adopt, you know, a sort of that sort of strategic perspective is, is been sort of fatally compromised in the last decade. And, you know, and, and therefore it is, it is not even remotely surprising to me that, you know, that the focus has tended to be, you know, how do we, um, you know, bash the universities over the head about keeping their students under control rather than how can we work with universities to, you know, re, you know essentially realise this enormous asset uh, of all these young people coming into our, into our area. Um, and, but, you know, but I think this, but this is it. I think the more, the more, um, the, the value of this kind of thing can be demonstrated um, and demonstrated to the local population as well. I, the thing that really struck me was, you know, thing, uh, the focus on things that really matter to students. I mean, we've seen in, uh, rich you know, political strategists like Rachel Wolf kind of endlessly saying, you know, governments are measured or assessed by their ability to make a real difference to people's lives on things that matter to them, like bin collections. And, you know, it is, it, it, it is also true, I think, that universities and, the, and, the, and, you know, universities will be assessed and measured by their ability to, uh, you know, genuinely make a meaningful difference to people's lives in their communities. And if so, if that, you know, includes getting students picking up litter, then that's the sort of thing that will, you know, gives that sort of, sort of life license to exist, really, and, 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 and a basis on which to build some of that more exciting stuff that you're talking about. Can I, can I come in there, Jeb? Because I, I think that's up. Absolutely right, Debbie. And the bins and noise, right, is the you know the fundamental uh, challenges that we, we we always face. And when we started down this road uh, as a th- the, the three organisations, what we were trying to do is essentially get beyond that. Um, and and I I think this approach does it. The other element, which isn't reflected here, but for me is is vital to this recognition of students as citizens, though is ensuring that students are on the electoral register, they have the opportunity to vote, and they play a full part in the democratic process in the areas in which they live. And that, that has been a huge challenge in the, in the past decade. Um, and it's something that I think is, is still a gap in, in this country. And we've got other challenges there, as we know, in terms of voter ID. But uh, that is part of, part of this picture, the bigger picture for me. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Selena, Paul, Debbie, our news editor Michael Salmon who makes the show happen behind the scenes. Mark will be here next week and until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.